0: The title of this message is uh, Jesus is the Son of God, the Word made flesh. Um, and Just before we, we kind of move into that, I just want to ask you a question. What, what specific event are you celebrating this Christmas? What is it specifically that you're celebrating this Christmas? And you might say that's the birth of Jesus. But like any birthday, a celebration, it's always good to know who the person is that we're celebrating with. And the closer the relationship we have with that person, the more special that time of celebration is. But who is Jesus? What is it about Jesus that is so special that's actually worth celebrating? And that's probably the most important question that confronts any person that ever lives, is who is Jesus, really? Jesus, when he was alive and and speaking to his disciples in Matthew 16, 13, asked this question of his disciples. It says this, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That's Jesus speaking of himself there. And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This statement captures the essence of who Jesus really is. He's both a man and a God, and God at the same time, the Son of God to be precise. So this morning in this final, I think it's the final Sunday in Advent, we're going to look back at the necessity and the significance of the incarnation. What does it actually mean to say that Jesus is fully human and fully God at the same time in one person? That's what we're going to think about this morning. In other words, why did the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, become human? What's the necessity for him to become human, and what's the significance of that for us this morning? That's what I want to talk about this morning in our time together. Like anything, to understand the necessity of something, it's also, it's also a good place to start is actually with the context of why that might be necessary. If I told you I need to borrow a hammer, some of you would probably look at me knowing how good I am at DIY, but it would probably be appropriate to to ask me, well, what do you want to use it for? What's the context? Why do you want a hammer? And that could be all sorts of things. So the context for the necessity of the incarnation begins with an understanding of the problem of sin. That's where we've got to start. So I want to try and briefly sketch out the problem of sin. And I want to do that from two perspectives. I want to do that from our perspective as, as mankind. But I also want to look at the problem of sin from God's perspective. Because that's actually what leads to the necessity for Christ to become human. And it's only by realizing just how dire the situation that mankind is actually in that we can hope to catch a glimpse of just how breathtaking and wonderful it is that Christ was born in a stable in Bethlehem. It's like any of the, the stories that we love to watch. The more hopeless the backdrop, the more stunning the point at which the hero is redeemed or resurrected. I think of the you know Tom Cruise movies, those Mission Impossible movies, just when things are completely hopeless and it looks like he's got no hope of return. I think even in one movie, he ends up actually dying and has to be physically brought back to life with with an electric shock. It's in those moments when there's no obvious way out that suddenly a form of redemption or resurrection appears that those stories are the ones that reflect back on the biggest rescue story we've already been hearing about this morning. The biggest rescue story in history. So, how did it all come about? Back in Genesis chapter 3, we read of sin entering the world for the first time. God had made his perfect creation, he had put Adam and Eve in that creation, and they sinned by eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. The only tree that God said to them, don't eat, they were tempted and ate of the tree. And God had warned them that that would result in death. It would result in them being cut off from eternal life, cut off from God's presence. So God expelled Adam and Eve from the garden so they could no longer eat of the fruit of the tree or the tree of life that was in the garden. And because of Adam's sin, the Bible tells us that every other human being who has ever lived and ever will live is also tainted with sin. Adam's problem is our problem. In Romans 5 and verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all men sinned. All of us, without exception, sin. We've all broken God's law. And the Bible is clear about the consequences of that for for us all. Paul in Romans 6.23 puts it simply. He says, for the wages of sin is death. There's no exceptions to that rule. So all of us without exception stand condemned to death. Stand condemned to an eternal separation from God. And just when you think it's bad, it gets even worse. Because we have no capacity within ourselves to do what God requires of us to keep his law. And no matter how many righteous acts or good acts or good deeds that you do in your life, we can never accumulate enough to pay the debt of the sin that we have. Even on our best day, we fall hopelessly short of what God requires of us. In Isaiah 64 and verse six, it says, we have all become like one who is unclean And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, filthy rags. So from man's perspective, we are left with an insurmountable problem that we cannot resolve ourselves. It truly is a hopeless situation. Now I want to look at it from God's perspective. And I want you to put yourself back to the months before Jesus came into the world, so at a time when Jesus wasn't even known about as a person. I'm gonna take Jesus out of the equation for a minute, and not for long, I promise you we're gonna come back to it. But you have to do this in order to understand the problem that that sin presents God. If you think about God, God in his nature is utterly perfect, he's utterly holy, and he's utterly just. God can't tolerate sin in his presence. And ultimately, one day, all of this sin will have to be paid for. God requires all evil and sin to be paid for. All sinful beings, Satan, his legions, all human beings who don't repent, will be banished from his presence forever. And Hebrew describes God as a consuming fire. So anything that's even got a slight hint of impurity that tries to come into his presence will be burnt up and consumed by his holiness. The Psalmist in Psalm 24 asks this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? And the reply comes, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. There's nobody that fits into that category. There's nobody that has purely clean hands and a pure heart. So only he or she who is holy, who is utterly pure in heart can stand in God's presence. And because of my sinful nature, because of your sinful nature, you or I would be burnt to a crisp instantaneously if we were to come even into the presence of a holy God. But you might say to me, well surely God is also loving, merciful, and forgiving. And that's absolutely true. God is loving, forgiving, and merciful. But the problem is that man on his own is unable to genuinely repent of his sin and turn his back and seek forgiveness. And God can't just simply turn a blind eye to sin and ignore the consequences. God can't simply forgive sin with no consequence because the Bible teaches us that all sin needs to be paid for with death, with the shedding of blood. And as the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9:22, it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you think back to the Old Testament Israel, the atonement, the day of the atonement The sacrifice was made where the blood of the Lamb was shed for the forgiveness of the sins. But even that wasn't enough to atone fully for the sins of the people. So God in His nature as God, God as Spirit, is unable to help us. Because God can't turn a blind eye to sin or His consequences. God can't surrender His will as Creator to the will of the creature to give us forgiveness, to set aside the punishment we deserve. And God is also immortal. God cannot die. So He can't die for our sins. So God in his own nature can't surrender, he can't submit, he can't suffer, and he can't die. Can you see just how hopeless and dire the situation is? So how is God gonna solve this problem of sin? How is God going to allow mankind to be reconciled to himself? And this is where the solution is absolutely radical and breathtaking. Just suppose that God became a man. Suppose God were to amalgamate, to join man's nature, which is able to suffer and die, with God's own nature in a single person. Then God, in the form of flesh, human flesh, could surrender his will, could suffer, could die, and pay the price for our sin. And he could do it perfectly because he is God. And this is why the Incarnation... The birth of Jesus as a baby in a manger that we celebrate at Christmas is such an utterly amazing event. God provides a truly remarkable solution to the problem of sin. And this is the extent of his mercy towards us, that God himself, the second person of the Trinity, should choose to join himself to human nature forever. And he did so to solve our problem of sin that cuts us off and separates us us from God. There is no greater miracle in all of history. And there's also no greater mystery or profound mystery in all of history. And it's summarized in the simple statement at the beginning of John's Gospel that we've been studying. Together before Christmas, it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. The biblical teaching about the person of Christ can be summarized in this one statement Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person, and will be so forever. That's a really simple statement to make. But the mystery it contains is too much for us to take in. Just by way of example, just think about this for a moment. Think about that helpless baby lying in a manger in a stable in Bethlehem. This is Jesus, the son of God in all of his humanity, a helpless baby. But yet at the same time, the same son of God is still sustaining the universe by the word of his power because he hasn't given up his divinity. It's it's such a profound mystery So I've looked at the necessity of why Jesus, God, became flesh. Now I just wanna think about what's the significance of Jesus being 100% man and 100% divine, two natures in one person. And I've just got five things to think about, to reflect on perhaps this Christmas time, to hopefully stir your affections, and wonder and amazement for who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And even if you forget four of them and hold on to just one, that's absolutely fine. But I wanna think of Christ in five ways to help us think about what it means that he's 100% human, 100% divine. Christ, first of all, is our substitute. He's our substitute. As we thought about earlier, God in his own nature can't die. But Jesus, as a human, as a man, can die, can pay the penalty that's due to us. And Jesus, in order to be able to pay that price, he had to become like us in every way, but without sin. Hebrews 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation, a sacrifice, a substitute for our sins. Jesus is our perfect substitute. Do you know him as your substitute? Secondly, Jesus Christ is our mediator our mediator. The problem with our sin is that it cuts us off from God, and we're unable to rescue ourselves, as we've talked about. John Calvin likened sin as this thick, impenetrable cloud that sits between us and God. Thick, thick cloud. And that cloud gets in the way of us from basking in the radiance and the glory of God. We need a mediator. We need somebody who can break through the cloud to open up the way so that we can come back into God's presence. We need somebody who is capable of representing us perfectly to God, but also someone who is equally capable of representing God perfectly to us. Those two things come together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is 100% God and 100% human. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Do you know Jesus as your mediator this morning? The third thing I want to think about is Jesus being our perfect example, our example. If you turn to, to Luke chapter 3 and verse 23 we find the genealogy of of Jesus. Jesus, um, I'm not going to read the whole thing, it's quite long, but this genealogy starts with Jesus and it works its way back to Adam. And it says, I'll, I'll just pick a few verses out. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, And it goes on, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, back to the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, and back to, ultimately, the son of Adam, the son of God. This genealogy starts with Jesus being born as the son of Joseph, as was supposed, because Mary was a virgin, And traces his sonship all the way back to Adam, who it says in verse 36 was the son of God. The first Adam, if you think about it, was created by God. God took some dust and he breathed life into Adam. Adam was not like any other human being until Jesus, where a man and a woman had to come together for an egg to be fertilized. Adam truly was the son of God. He didn't have human parents And the first Adam before the fall was a perfect man. And God's design for Adam and Eve was to have a family, to fill the earth, to to multiply, to multiple families who would worship God, who would walk in obedience to God, who would enjoy his presence, and who would rule over the abundance of his creation. That was God's perfect design for what he wanted, which is why he created man in the first place. But we know that when faced with temptation, the first Adam fell. And when Adam fell, he lost it all for every single one of us. Jesus, like the first Adam, was created by God in the miracle of the virgin birth. In the passage Jill read earlier, it says, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus, unlike anyone else in history, was born to a virgin. And Gabriel tells Mary that Jesus will be holy, perfect, without sin. But Jesus still knew what it was like to be tempted, he knew what it was like to resist temptation. And it's in that respect that Jesus is our perfect example. Jesus comes to represent what a true human being made in God's image should actually look like and live like. In Luke's gospel, the genealogy of Jesus comes in Luke chapter 3, as we just, we just looked at, and it, becomes, it comes between his baptism and his temptation. Jesus, the last Adam, the greater Adam, was tempted. And in Luke 4, after you read of his genealogy, we read about his temptation where Jesus is taken into the wilderness and he's confronted by Satan and Satan tries to tempt him. And Satan wants Jesus to give up his submission to God and give his submission to Satan himself but Jesus resisted. Jesus was the perfect Adam because he was able to stand and resist the temptation. Jesus was the perfect man in every respect and was therefore able to live a completely sinless life. So as Christians, God has given us an example of what it looks like to live a perfectly obedient life that is dedicated in submission to God our Father. And not only has he done that, but he's also given us the power through the Holy Spirit to follow his example and to say no when we're tempted to sin. Hebrews 2 verse 18 says, For because he, that's Jesus, for because he himself has suffered and when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So whatever temptation you face as a Christian Jesus has broken the power of sin and is able to help you overcome that temptation. So Jesus is our perfect example. Number four, Jesus, our high priest. We look to a high priest as someone who can help us with uh, our weaknesses and the trials and troubles and tribulations that we face in life, but also can help resolve the problem that sin has in our life. And Jesus, because he lived as a man on this earth, was able to fulfill that role as our high priest perfectly. And he's able to do that because Jesus, as a human, as a man, experienced the full gamut of human emotions and weaknesses. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood by parents. When he went missing from the temple and his parents frantically looked around for him as a 12-year-old and eventually found him, and they had words, I'm sure. Jesus knows the frustration of learning new skills. He trained as a carpenter under his father, Joseph, and I'm sure that that didn't go well at times. He knows what it's like to suffer the loss of a loved one when he wept for his friend, Lazarus. Jesus knows what it's like to be so tired and so weary that you just get to the point where you just cannot go on. Jesus slept in a boat in a, in a wild storm because he was dog-tired of, of, a, of a, a period of intense ministry. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend. When someone who has lived closer than a brother with you for three years and shared life with you, sells you out for 30 pieces of silver... And he seals the deal with a kiss on the cheek. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer from anxiety and stress. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he faced the prospect of being crucified on a Roman cross. Jesus would have known exactly what he was going to face. The mental anguish of knowing that nails would pierce through his hands and his feet and of knowing that he'd be suffocated by his own blood, gasping for breath as he hung on that tree. Jesus went through the mental anguish of that in the garden of Gethsemane, knowing what was going to come. He knows what it's like to be mocked and openly scorned and shamed to the point where the mob cry out for your death. Jesus knows what it's like to be led like a lamb to the slaughter, to, to surrender totally and absolutely to somebody else's will. Jesus knows what it's like for a body to be racked with excruciating pain that can't be controlled or even dulled with fortified wine. And finally, Jesus knows what it's like to pass through the veil that separates our last moment of conscious thought in our physical body with with death as our heart beats for the last time. Jesus is fully human. Jesus is fully divine. And he's now present in his resurrected body, sitting at the right hand of the Father on high. There's a piece of humanity is now forever present in the presence of God in heaven. Jesus Christ is our high priest, and because of his humanity, he's able to intercede for us and he's able to, able to act on our behalf. In Romans 8:34, it says: Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who who indeed is interceding for us. And Hebrews 4, verses 15 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." What a great comfort it is to know that Jesus understands perfectly what it is to be a weak human being. Whatever you face in life, be assured that Jesus knows fully what you're going through and can intercede for you at the throne of the Father. And finally, number five, Jesus is our perfect king. He's our king. Scott preached a couple of weeks ago about Jesus being king He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. I want to just think about why it's necessary for Jesus to be fully human and fully divine to take up this kingship. And it goes back to the beginning of the story that we've been considering and asking the question, why did God create the universe in the first place? Why did God create mankind? Why did he create men and women and put them on this earth? And the answer of that flows out of God's nature as a triune God. God is a God of relationship. God is a triune God. There's the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three in one, the one in three. And God wants to share and display His glory. God wants to share the love that the Father has for the Son. He wants to share the, the love that the Son has for the Father. And all of that's enlivened by the Spirit. And, and because of that, God is a creative person in his being. And, he, and his purpose was to share his love, this love, with men and women created in his own image. And he wanted mankind to participate in God's creation, to rule over the created order as God's representatives. God intended man to have dominion or kingship over the earth, but Adam failed. And we find that down through the successive generations, a promise was made to, to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, and David that one day a king would come who would actually be able to fulfill perfectly what God had originally intended for Adam to do to exercise dominion and authority over creation as God intended. And the fulfillment of that promise came when Jesus was born. Jesus, a descendant of David a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Noah, a descendant of Adam. Listen to what the angel Gabriel said to Mary that Jill read for us earlier. In Luke 1, verse 30 to 33, it says, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus, as a man, was able to obey God, thereby God granted him the right to rule creation, fulfilling God's original purpose for man on earth. This is how Paul describes it in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He now rules as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will reign forever and ever. His kingdom doesn't come to an end ever. And what's even more amazing is the promise goes even further than that. For those of us who are willing to repent of our sin and who are willing to submit to Christ's lordship, Jesus makes this promise in Revelation 3, Verse 21, speaking to the church in Laodicea, Jesus says this, "'The one who conquers, "'I will grant him to sit with me on my throne "'as I also conquered "'and sat down with my Father on his throne.'" At the end of history, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and God's purposes for mankind will ultimately be fulfilled completely in that time. And at that point, all those who are found in Christ Will reign with him, our King. So, in conclusion, there's no more profound a mystery or miracle than the second person of the triune God the, God, the Son of God, becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. Our salvation and ultimately Christianity is dependent on the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus. And there's probably no other claim outside of the existence of God that is so often attacked by the enemy than the proclamation of Jesus being fully God and fully man in the same person. Right from the earliest days of the church, Christ's divinity was questioned. John, in his first and second letters, deals with this head on. For example, in in 2 John verse 7, he says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. To deny the fullness of Jesus' divinity is to deny God the Father. And Jesus asks each one of us the same question this morning that he put his disciples, who do you say that I am? You can either choose to deny that he was truly the Son of God 100% divine, 100% human, or you can believe that that is the case. In 1 John 4, 14, it says, "'And we have seen and testify "'that the Father has sent His Son "'to be the Saviour of the world. "'Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, "'God abides in Him, and He in God. "'So we have come to know and to believe "'the love that God has for us. "'God is love, and whoever abides in love "'abides in God.'" and God abides in him. All that God asks of us is to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and we can abide with him forever. The early church at the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, and subsequently in the Council of Chalcedon in AD 451, formulated a creed or a confession of faith And and the purpose of that was to put down heresies and controversies in the church surrounding Christ's divinity. And and these creeds seek to summarize the biblical teaching of the incarnation by putting them into succinct statements. And, And in fact, you know, Hillview as a church, we have a statement of faith, and article number five of that statement says, we believe in the incarnation of God's eternal Son the Lord Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, truly divine and truly human, yet without sin. It's a summary sentence of the claim that we make of the belief that we have that Jesus is 100% human, 100% divine for forever. So let me close. I want to read a slightly fuller confession than that. It's a more modern day one. It was put together by Ligonier Ministries, which was founded by the late R.C. Sproul. And they put out a a statement uh, called the Word Made Flesh. This is the Word Made Flesh. And it's a confession just to finish with. Because all of this ultimately should lead to us falling at our feet in worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The word made flesh. We confess the mystery and wonder of God made flesh and rejoice in our great salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord. With the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Son created all things, sustains all things, and makes all things new. Truly God, he, be- he became truly man, two natures in one person. He was born of the Virgin Mary and lived among us, Crucified, dead, and buried, he rose on the third day, ascended to heaven, and will come again in glory and judgment. For us, he kept the law, atoned for sin, and satisfied God's wrath. He took our filthy rags and gave us his righteous robe. He is our prophet, priest, and king, building his church, interceding for us, and reigning over all things. Jesus Christ is Lord. We pray His holy name forever. Amen.